0: Thank you so much to our organizers uh, for today. Um, my task in a very short amount of time is to think about how, in roughly 50 years, Britain's leading role in the slave trade and Caribbean slavery was transformed from a valued national interest, something that wasn't really questioned uh, or interrogated very deeply, to a shameful national sin. How did such a dramatic revolution in moral sentiments occur? Now, History never happens in quite the same way twice. Any historian offering to you prescriptions about exactly how um, uh, we should learn and and implement lessons from the past in the present probably deserves your skepticism. My interpretation of the past, uh, let alone my abstraction of it, will be open to criticism and question from other scholars working in the same uh, period, looking at the same field. But what I want to suggest today is that thinking about the abolition of the slave trade achieved in 1807 and thinking about the emancipation of enslaved people in the West Indies achieved in the 1830s makes us better at analysing the prospects for change in our own time and thinking about the anatomy of social change uh, in other contexts. So I want to begin by taking you back to 1783, the year that peace was signed between the rebellious colonists of the United States uh, and Great Britain. And at this period, slavery may have been acknowledged as something unpleasant, something uh, that wasn't uh, an attractive uh, condition for those in it, but also those involved in working within it. Perhaps something that cultured Britons regretted and looked down upon. But there was virtually no censure of human bondage as a moral or political evil which anyone was really talking about requiring social intervention and social concern, rather than perhaps individual abstention or political action from actually owning slaves oneself. And in the short time available, I want to highlight three factors uh, that help us think through, I think, the ways in which, within 50 years, uh, this completely changed. And those three factors are, in turn, the forces of pressure that were assembled against the Atlantic slave system, The terms of debate, the types of arguments that are used. And then thirdly, uh, what I've called coherent coalescence, which is a bit of a tongue twister on reflection. But to think about the ways in which diverse different reasons, diverse different motives uh, coalesce together in an abolitionist movement. And the first of these factors concerning forces of pressure might be the one most familiar to people in this room from the NGO world or from campaigning uh, backgrounds. Abolitionists have often been described as the first modern NGO. Certainly, they have a claim uh, in Anti-Slavery International, uh, based down in Stockwell, the uh, direct descendants of the 1839 Anti-Slavery Society, to being the oldest continuous human rights organization in the world. And their campaign developed effective, recognizable iconography. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the Am I Not a Man and Brother cameo image, uh, designed by Wedgwood that I show up here. Um, in which uh, a kneeling slave asks, am I not a man and brother? But also, um, abolitionists were very successful at taking their evidence-gathering operations um, and using it in a new visual medium. So the overhead and side views of the uh, number of Africans packed in between the decks of the slave ship Brooks, a Liverpool-registered ship, uh, this became and still is today, I think, an iconic image of the transatlantic slave trade. But taking the research, turning it into graphic form, putting it on a broadside and using that as a form of visual communication, um, as a confrontational tactic of the exact conditions on slave ships, which weren't just unpleasant or mildly distasteful, uh, but were a floating uh, hell. This is a, a new tactic innovated by abolitionists. Moreover, many poorer men and all women denied the vote in this period. Uh, found themselves getting their first taste of national political action through petitioning or through boycotting slave-grown West Indian sugar. In 1827, for example, servants working at the retreat asylum in York petitioned their employers, the trustees of this asylum, asking that only free labour sugar not made by slaves would be served to the inmates uh, by them from the kitchens, um, given the horrors that they gleaned about the treatment of slaves in the West Indies. And we have lots of evidence uh, of often uh, women in the household and, indeed, children, too, uh, leading calls for their family to stop buying West India sugar. Now, the scale of petitioning that was unleashed by abolitionist campaigners on a moral issue, which didn't seem quite so subversive uh, as domestic politics in this period would have perhaps done, But it still undoubtedly shook the British elite, and it kind of broke, it innovated, the ways in which politics was meant to work in Britain in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Abolitionists prospered, though, from well-placed allies within the establishment, as well as putting pressure on it from without. Our admiration for the popular pressure, which mounted against the slave trade and then slavery, shouldn't blind us to moments such as the actual passage of the 1807 Act in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars, (laughs) where public mobilization had actually been banned during the war, and it was backroom elite measures which actually got the final act passed, although undoubtedly it's popular mobilization before the uh, period of repression in the Napoleonic Wars which had made this an issue and put it onto uh, the political agenda. But in making the slave trade a political question in the first place, and certainly in passing the 1833 Emancipation Act, which ended slavery in the British West Indies, there we can see popular pressure directed at legislators through and alongside representative institutions that existed at that time. We can definitely see that as being absolutely instrumental to this change passed through Parliament. It was Elizabeth Hayrick, a Leicester radical, whose 1824 writings in favor of immediate emancipation not gradual emancipation, as the abolitionist leadership had been pushing in Parliament. It was her who pushed parliamentary abolitionists into action and set in chain the final decade that would triumph in the Emancipation Act. But alongside grassroots campaigners, you know, pushing and and pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable at the local level and their elite allies in Parliament, slave resistance is a factor which historians often overlooked. The same chains which became a byword for colonial uh, oppression are a constant reminder of the threat that enslaved Africans posed to traders and owners. We can see enslaved Africans in the Caribbean responding to news or rumors of abolitionist victories back in Britain in Barbados in 1816, in Demerara in 1823, and in uh, Jamaica's rising of 1831 to 32 Now, whether these rebellions would be received back in Britain as evidence of pro-slavery claims of enslaved Africans' barbarism and danger, or by abolitionists as confirmation of slavery's evils, depended, of course, on the contest that was going on in the British Isles between these two narratives of how to explain rebellions and resistance. William Dixon, an abolitionist agitator, uh, put the uh, latter argument uh, uh, in these words, that a creature should have been formed for a state that he so abhors is an exception to the general economy of the universe. So a way of trying to articulate and explain why and how resistance was proof uh, of the fact that slavery was, was perhaps not sustainable, but was also um, evidence of its immorality uh, and religious evil. Now, that, that has led us on to think a little bit about um, the terms of debate, about the types of arguments that abolitionists Uh, would roll out to change the terms of debate on which the slave trade and slavery were debated. Abolitionist petitioning had been radical in the medium used. Petitioning um, uh, wasn't just radical in the message of asking to end slavery. It was radical uh, because of the fact that it was being used on an issue where the mass of people didn't have a direct (coughs) personal economic interest. Petitioning was a well-worn, well-established method of being heard by Parliament, but it was a method for lobbyists, for businesses, for those with a direct economic stake in society to make their concerns heard. And that actually led to the West Indians representatives in London complaining that petitions ought not to be heard from those who didn't have a direct interest in the slave economy themselves, that it was illegitimate for others to voice their opinions. And that objection doesn't just reveal the ways in which abolitionists were pushing the boundaries, pushing the envelope of how this established technique could be repurposed and reused as a popular method of pressure. It also shows how they were pushing to redefine whose interests and which interests should be taken into account by Parliament in establishing national policy and national political calculations. William Dixon, who I mentioned earlier, travelled around Scotland to spread the gospel of abolitionism from the 1790s onwards. And he clutched, as he did so, a diary containing notes handed down to him from Thomas Clarkson's experience of doing a similar thing, going around different towns in England and campaigning. And inside the back cover, Dixon had noted from his conversations with Clarkson that the practical policy aspects of abolition should probably be best avoided on the stump. He would simply assert that what was unjust must in the end turn out to be impolitic. And this mantra, the primacy of moral outrage over details of economic reasoning, would be the idiom of anti slavery campaigners out of doors. But this preference for a sentimental sympathy or a pious zeal for a kind of moral urgency shouldn't mask us to the fact that campaigners were reassuring people at every turn that there would be national prosperity after abolition. While dismissing the calculation of pounds, shillings, and pence on the stump, um, authors and speakers could still reassure audiences that no good would, in the end, come from evil. So that Leicester radical, Elizabeth Hayrick, told her readers that, quote, we cannot sufficiently admire the great wisdom and goodness of those providential arrangements which have, in the general course of events, so inseparably connected our duty with our interest. And the radicalism of Hayrick and her peers lay in locating interest, in locating national self-interest, away from the profits of West Indian slaveholders or the cheap sugar which they shipped back to Britain. Whether it came in the form of moral resolve, God's favor for Britain, alternative sources of trade, uncorrupted British liberties, new productivity, perhaps relief from rebellion and the threat of resistance or any of the other many variables that they proffered. A moral absolute as the main issue could be paired with diverse conflicting perhaps explanations of exactly how virtue would be made manifest in reward in this world. So Those are some of the arguments which, on the one hand, tried to sidestep details, but yet maintained a kind of shotgun approach of a whole variety of different explanations of why this wasn't um, an unthinkable, impolitic, unachievable uh, goal. And finally, my last point comes to a question uh, of coherent coalescence. My illustration here is one of the manuscript uh, requisitions requesting a petition meeting um, down in Plymouth, in fact, um, uh, from the campaign. This broad front of anti-slavery arguments that I've talked about, differing in details and the different primary motives and reasons that were offered, reflected the fact there was a kind of artificiality in the coherence behind the abolitionist movement. It was a movement that drew on very diverse social, religious, and political groups. The contrast between British abolitionists and their American ilk, a couple of decades later, couldn't be starker. While Hayrick. Uh, shamed anti-slavery parliamentarians into greater radicalism and pushed them to be far more ambitious. The movement didn't splinter. Whatever the internal um, debates and contradictions were going on, abolitionists didn't publicly um, make their primary uh, question factional uh, infighting, at least until after emancipation had been achieved. There were disputes over tactics, disputes such as when the Radical Agency Committee harangued parliamentary candidates in ungentlemanly ways uh, and over policies in particular, um, thinking here specifically of debates amongst abolitionists as to whether or not accepting an Emancipation Act, which contained 20 million pounds of compensation for slaveholders, was an acceptance of the fact that they did own property in human beings, that this was a compromise to, to see emancipation happen, but to see it happen by the government paying compensation was a point of contention for more radical uh, abolitionists. But what they did manage to do was to focus their activities on pressuring the government for action, even if exactly the action they wanted to see differed, and even if the precise uh, points of pressure and tactics they were using uh, did diverge. Um, They were helped, I think, here by structural differences between British politics and American politics. There were reasons the British system was easier to pressure in Westminster in this way, whereas the US system had different um, structural issues which would have made that harder. Allies on the slavery issue in Britain could and did turn out to be bitter enemies on plenty of other questions. And there is some evidence in the local areas, this example from Plymouth is one of them, of how other issues, such as the removal of civil liberties restrictions against Catholics in the 1820s, ended up splitting grassroots committees of abolitionists, and some people dropped out because they'd fallen out with their compatriots over a separate political issue they were both uh, concerned about, but on different sides of. And yet the MP William Wilberforce, um, the, the sort of person who most of you will be most familiar with as the big name in the great man version of the history of abolitionism, people like William Wilberforce were part of the movement where parliamentary spokespeople for it were well-connected, but didn't command universal affection and support amongst abolitionists, certainly amongst the more radical ones, partly because he supported the repression of civil liberties under the Tory wartime governments, but also because of his support for factory owners' interests, which didn't endear him uh, in particular to the craftsmen in his West-riding Uh, Yorkshire constituency, yet still, a radical campaigner such as Richard Oastler, who quit abolitionism in order to represent the white slaves of Yorkshire, as he referred to uh, machinists there, and other critics of abolitionism, such as William Cobbett, proved to be exceptions rather than the rule, people who broke away and started denouncing abolitionism because it seemed to them a distraction from other causes close to home. For the most part, abolitionists managed to cohere, despite diverse ideas within the movement, and indeed plenty of disagreements on broader issues, and ended up creating a coalition that bridged parties, denominations, and classes. And it's worth noting that this did make for a very fractious and incoherent movement, which split apart after 1833. Once they'd achieved the main priority of emancipation in the West Indies, the legacy of what anti-slavery meant was very much up for grabs. Westminster had offered a clear focus for campaigners, since the Imperial Parliament could abolish slavery in its colonies. Whereas, as I've alluded to earlier, American abolitionists had struggled with the weakness of their federal government to interfere in the rights of slave states in the South under the American Constitution. But even more pointedly, a broad coalition in Britain could prosper because only a very small minority of abolitionists actually advanced the more radical implications of anti-slavery that we today would tend to associate with the cause. And by this I mean a support for black equality and black self-determination. The terms of emancipation were plenty disputed within the abolitionist movement, but what's quite striking, and, and perhaps gives us a point of sobriety in our admiration, is the fact that very few abolitionists really challenged the ideal of a pliant, subservient black labor force in the West Indies after emancipation. The continuing exploitation, repression, and racism that marked British administration in the West Indies after emancipation um, wasn't, I don't think it's fair to characterize, a betrayal of the anti-slavery movement. The anti-slavery movement had never been anti-racist, even if its most radical members had sought to extend to Africans a measure of the humanity that had been denied by the transatlantic Slave trade. My final um, point overall, then, is to just think and pull back to think about abolitionism as a social movement, and particularly the extent to which they bequeathed us not just the oldest continuous human rights organisation in the world, but also perhaps the template that was used by later reformers as petitioning was adopted by Chartists demanding the vote for working men and the anti corn Law League demanding free trade. Generations after their mothers had boycotted slave-grown sugar, women's rights campaigners, such as Josephine Butler, consciously adopted the mantle abolitionist to describe their opposition to misogynistic legislation. This was a a legacy, a reputation worth adopting and trying to uh, wear that mantle for a whole load of other causes. By changing the terms of debate about what and whose interests should matter in parliamentary considerations as well as who should be expressing political judgments and and offering their opinions on the righteousness of particular uh, causes, British abolitionists overcame a powerful lobby and created a model and perhaps a few myths which survived to shape future social movements um, that we've lived with ever since. And yet, in a comparison between the abolition of slavery in different European empires or post-colonial republics, whether they be the United States or Brazil or France, it should show us how different societies and cultures and economies and politics offered very different histories. In Haiti, the only successful slave revolt in the Atlantic world, which overthrew French colonial rule and established the first uh, black republic in the world, we don't need to look to abolitionists but to resistance of the enslaved themselves to explain the end of slavery. But I'm guessing that most organisations and individuals in the audience today have considered and discounted armed insurrection as a tactic for your organisation. And instead, what we might be thinking today is more about the model that British abolitionism uh, provided of a social change that tried to subvert, that tried to adapt Um, to the systems uh, of democratic uh, governance in which we find ourselves today and the systems of political representation, very far from democracy, which existed 200 years ago. So what I want to offer today in my anatomy of abolitionism is a diagnostic tool rather than a replicable recipe that you can take home and use. Different movements protesting in different times and places will encounter their own challenges. But for me, these three points stand out for anyone seeking social change. That we should think about the forces of pressure that are amassed, of of how they are used and what they're pressuring for, and what the points in the system are. Um, Is it a parliamentary act that is um, attempting to be achieved? What exactly is the the point of pressure and who's going to be doing it? The terms of debate in terms of the questions of whose interests, what interests, um, and what are being challenged, what are not being challenged, Uh, which myths need to be dispelled. And finally, this point about coherent coalescence, which to me seems actually a really interesting and and problematic one of a question of how many heretics will be allowed in the big tent of keeping together a movement uh, that is going for a particular cause, or at what point does someone drift so far away and seems to be supporting so many other causes or particular variations on the cause um, that they no longer seem helpful and useful to be fellow travelers. So I'll leave it there, but I very much look forward in the questions and the groups um, to picking up on a few more of these issues and discussing where and how the parallels might prompt us to think more deeply about today, whatever my traditional historian's reluctance um, to draw and offer deliberate recipes and prescriptions. Thank you.